Well, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We get to continue in our study today of Hebrews. <clears throat> it's been a few weeks, so may, might need a little bit of a recap, but um, I'll do my best to keep that short. Someone once said that the job of a preacher is to comfort the afflicted, but also to afflict the comfortable. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but so far I think this book has done a masterful job of accomplishing those two tasks. It certainly is a book written to comfort those who are afflicted. Uh, it's written to a small Jewish community, a small Jewish uh, church, and they're suffering under persecution uh, from their fellow uh, brethren, their fellow Jews. They've been ostracized from uh, society. They're, uh, you know, bending really under the weight of the suffering, and many of them are, are really thinking of, of pulling up anchor, of, of, of leaving Christianity and, and going back into Judaism, abandoning Christ. And so the letter really was written to show them that Jesus is better than anything they would hope to go back to, anything they would hope to find back in their old way of life, that what they have found is, is infinitely better than anything that you have so far given up. So the author began by showing us uh, Jesus. In fact, he's demonstrated in the opening verses all these amazing things about Jesus, that he is the creator and sustainer of the universe, which is just amazing to think about, that all these things hold together because of Christ and he made it all, that he is the inheritor of it all, so it all belongs to him anyway. He, he's, uh, he's fully God, he fully represents his nature, he radiates his very uh, glory, and he's the one that, that purifies sinners. He's the one that purged the sins of man, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. He's ruler of everything, and, and so great is his rule that he is even ruling higher than the angels. And that was one of the themes that he began to pick up here. Um, uh, we looked at this over the last couple of uh, weeks uh, we looked at what the Bible tells us about angels, you know, that they are, they're mighty beings, they're magnificent, but as mighty and as magnificent as they are, Jesus is, Jesus is superior to them in every way. We looked that he has a better name. No angel is called son, son of God, that's Jesus Christ. No, no angel has that name. He has a better honor because they worship him. He does not worship them. He has a better nature because he is God. He's divine, but they are created beings, angels are. So, but he's God, and therefore he, he has a better existence because he's eternal, he's unchangeable, and he's the ruler of, of everything. But if you remember, we came to chapter 2, and then the author paused. He paused from, from comforting the afflicted, and he took a break from that to issue a warning to the comfortable. It was the first of five warnings that we find in this book. And the warning, if you remember from the sermon title, was don't drift away. You remember the, the nautical terms that are used in the passage that we looked at? Lest we drift away is in chapter 2, verse 1. And that word really means to, to glide by, to sort of slip, slip on by. He says we must give more earnest heed Prosecco, that mean, word means to, to, to moor up a ship or tie up a, a ship. And so we really looked at the, the theme of, of the last study we did, that, that we must secure ourselves to the things which we have been taught, lest the ship drift past salvation. That was kind of the idea. If you don't secure yourself to the truth, when you hear the truth, then your, your very soul is in very great peril. 
And what truth? Well, it's the truth about Christ. It's the truth about everything that was, was demonstrated in chapter 1. We looked at the character of Christ. But also, the writer gave another sort of um, motivation toward, toward salvation, towards receiving Christ, and that was the certainty of judgment. And we looked at some hard things last time, I know, but, but judgment is absolutely certain. And he gave examples from the Old Testament. If God did not hesitate to punish those who were given the law, which was mediated by angels, those Jewish people, his chosen people, if he didn't hesitate to punish them, how do we think we're going to escape his wrath, his punishment? And remember, God, we, we looked at some examples of God killing people who picked up sticks, right? They, they picked up sticks on a Sabbath when told not to pick up sticks. And it just seems like God in the Old Testament is very wrathful, very vengeful, and people always ask that question, how could God kill so many people in the Old Testament? Let me just tell you, we're asking the wrong question because we have the wrong view of God. The question really should be, why did he let any of them live? That's really the question. I've been reading A.W. Tozer's book, Knowledge of the Holy, again this, this year. And if you never read that, by the way, write it down, Knowledge of the Holy. But there's a part in there about, about the very beginning about God that says, if all the problems of heaven and earth were to come upon you at once. So think about the problems we have on us just now. Okay, well, now you have all the problems that exist on earth and heaven. They're all come upon you. They would be nothing compared to the problem of God. That's pretty weighty. If God exists, if he's real, you have a very big problem. Who is God? Who is he? You must answer to that God. The God that is holy and perfect and sinless, and and we are anything but, by the way. What's he going to do with you? Why do we think we get to come into his presence? And the idea, when we look at the Old Testament, is that we've made God so very little. We want to put God on the uh, witness stand. And we want to question him. Remember Job? Job was, he is afflicted much, wasn't he? And he began to question God. And you might even look at Job's life and go, well, you know, Job, he really got hammered. So he's got a place to say, come on, God, what's going on? But when he began to do that, what did God do? You, que- you question me. I'm going to put you here. I'm going to ask you questions, son. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, right? That's what he says. Let's just start there. I created everything. How dare you question me? But that's what he was. He was putting Job in his place. And by the time he was done, Job said, I, I have heard of you. My life was as if I heard you, but now I, now I see you for the first time. He saw him high and lifted up in a new way, in a way that he'd never seen him before. We cannot put God in this small little place. And God is going to judge sin. And that was the motivation that he was using in chapter two to say, don't delay. If you've heard the truth, anchor yourself to it because you're in danger of just drifting by and get the next stop is, is damnation. That's the next stop. So anchor yourself to the truth when you hear it. And that same God of the Old Testament is the one that confirmed the truth and he did it through the wonderful miracles and signs and wonders that he did through the apostles when the message of the gospel went out. So having duly warned those who were maybe hesitant to embrace Christ, maybe those who were just a little uh, comfortable in their life, now the author returns to his task of comforting the church. We're coming back uh, to that. 
He's elevated their view of Christ. He's reminded them of the great salvation that comes from him. And now he seeks to elevate their spirits by instructing them about their destiny. It's about their destiny. What is man's destiny? Well, we know that the catechism tells us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That certainly is your chief end. Your chief destiny is that you would just enjoy God, glorify him for eternity. That is absolutely true. But the author picks another aspect, aspect of man's destiny that would bring particular encouragement for a suffering church, for a suffering people. And really keeping in with the nautical theme that was begun in chapter 2, he consider the sufferings of the church then. And let's also consider the sufferings uh, of the churches today, the tidal wave of, uh, of demonic influence, of, of, of ungodly influence that threatens the church today. The tiny church then, our tiny church now, we can feel like just a tiny little raft in the middle of this gigantic hostile sea, can't we? And we just feel so small and insignificant. Even as I said earlier, as we pray for Ukraine, you know, we just, what can we do? And we seemingly can't stop these, these laws that come out that are against what we believe to be the truth about how we are to live according to scripture. And we can't, you know, so we just feel so insignificant. That came up in our prayer meeting on Tuesday that was mentioned. Because the prayer meeting, we bring up a lot of news and we read a lot of daily, uh, you know, current events. And, and by the time you're ready for prayer, you're ready for prayer because you're just so depressed. You're like, this is horrible. And you feel insignificant. Someone said, yeah, I just feel like I don't even know where to begin. Well, this passage is perfect for us today because it reminds us that we're not, we're not insignificant. It instructs us on, and here it is, the destiny of man and particularly of believers. We have a destiny, and I want to read the passage today, and we'll jump into this study because I think you'll find it very encouraging. We'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 today. So Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Follow along here. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you were mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us today. These few verses that we begin to look at, Lord, are packed with so much wonderful truth, amazing truth about the destiny of man. And Lord, I pray that your people today would feel the encouragement that comes from your word today. We need your Holy Spirit. There's some difficult things here, Lord, so may the revealer of truth guide us into truth today for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this first part is the, uh, the revelation of God's, uh, sorry, man's destiny. The revelation of man's destiny is given to us in these first few verses, and I'm going to go slowly so that we can sort of see how this comes about. Just look at verse 5. For he has not put the world to come, 
of which we speak in subjection to angels. Now, the author is obviously keeping the subject of angels. We're not done with the angelic theme. We're going to keep this. In fact, he's going to continue to mention uh, angels all the way to the end of chapter 2. The link here to the preceding passage is the word for. For he has not put the world to come. So remember that preceding paragraph was an argument from the lesser to the greater. That's what we were looking at. The lesser was that the law that was mediated by angels, okay, if God didn't fail to judge those, those people who broke that law, then how will, how will he deal with those who reject his son? His son was the greater. That was the, the lesson there. And his point was that Jesus is better than angels. That he, and he's, that's been the point, the second half of, of chapter one. And to make a further point, he tells us now that the world to come has not been put in subjection to angels. Jesus is better than angels, but the world that's going to come, that's not going to be given to angels. Now, note what it says, the world to come, not the world, but the world to come. Now, he uses the same word for world here that we looked at back in chapter 1, verse 6. You might remember we pointed this this word out. It says when he again brings the firstborn into the world. I pointed that out because usually the word world in the New Testament is cosmos. That's not the word there in chapter 1, and it's not the word here. They're both the same word, and the word is oikumene, and it's a specific word, and it means inhabited earth. Remember we looked at that? The inhabited earth. So the inhabited world to come, that's what he's saying, will not be put into subjection to angels. In other words, that future world, the one that's going to come, is going to be arranged under the administration of angels, under the uh, rule of angels. It won't be under that. And that's the idea there. It's a future world. What is that world to come? It's the messianic kingdom, okay? The messianic kingdom, just to be clear, because I'm not sure everyone understands this, when Christ returns, he's going to rule and reign on this earth, on this very one, for a thousand years. Now, I know that, that not everybody believes in a literal 1,000-year reign. I understand that. I do. I do believe that Jesus will reign on this, this, this particular earth for a thousand years. Revelation 20 describes that to us. Future here, we'll look at it in a bit. But um, this is this earth. I want to be clear we understand this. Not the new heavens and the new earth, because that comes later in chapter 21. All right, so I want to make sure everyone understands what we're talking about. The messianic kingdom, the millennial reign of Jesus is when he returns and he rules here for a thousand years. Now, if you're an amillennialist, uh, you would not believe in a literal thousand-year reign. Amillennialists believe that that, that is uh, spiritualized. They spiritualize the text. And the idea that Jesus rules and reigns for a thousand years is figurative. He figuratively rules and reigns in your heart. So he's ruling and reigning in the church for a thousand years. That's the idea that they believe. I don't agree with that. I believe that this is one of the texts that plainly say that there is a world to come and it won't be under the subjection of angels. In fact, chapter 20 says that the reign of Christ on earth will be for a thousand years. And we also know that in the Old Testament, many Old Testament passages speak about what the world will look like. It will actually look different. It's not a new heavens and a new earth, but this world will have some changes that take place when Jesus sets foot upon it, which the creator of the universe steps upon this world. I would, I would expect some things to change. I would hope. Wouldn't you hope some things would change? 
Like, oh, why is the graffiti still on the wall? I mean, I hope some things would, would look a little bit different with Jesus ruling and reigning. Well, Zechariah 14, just to give you a picture, gives us a little bit, okay, just in a particular area. Zechariah 14, verses 8 through 11. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea, and in both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one and his name one. All the land shall be turned into a plain. From Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses, the people shall dwell in it and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. So, Obviously, we're looking at a particular area in Israel, but we see that, boy, there's, there's rivers now that are flowing out of Jerusalem. We know that to be true because when Jesus sets foot, boy, it's going to cause a big valley to uh, appear in that area. We see that a plain, uh, the rest of the land is turned into a plain. So there's, there's geographical changes that take place. Guess what? Animals, your relationship with animals will be different in that time, we're told. And you'll, you'll have actually different relationships with people because while people walking around with <laughs> glorified bodies. So it's going to be, it's going to be different. That's a glorious new world. And now that is the world that he's talking about. It's the world to come. And that world will not be ruled by angels. What does that tell us? First, it tells us that this world currently is. This world, this world right now we live in, is ruled by angels. That's a fact. Jesus stated that fact. Give you a couple of verses in John chapter 12, verse 31. He said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Who's the ruler of this world? Yes. He says it again in chapter 14, verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. The ruler is Satan. What is Satan? An angel right? He's an angel. He's a fallen angel. He's a demon, but an angel nonetheless. He's a created being. This world is under the rule, the administration of angels, fallen angels. Paul calls him the God of this age. Now, we just know that just by looking at the world. We just know that this entire world is under the influence of demons. It's clear. You you can't miss it as a believer, and, and listen, Paul tries to explain that to us in wonderful words. Look at what he says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood are not our enemies. The Ukrainians are not wrestling against Russians. They're wrestling against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Listen. The real warfare is being waged between demons and holy angels. Demons influence armies. They influence nations. Listen, we got a great picture of that when we looked at Daniel chapter 10. Do you remember going back to that? We looked at that. Michael the archangel had to come and help another angel as they were battling fallen angels who were influencing the kingdoms of Persia and Greece. A very clear picture of what was happening there. Revelation gives us a very clear picture of armies moving at the influence of 
demons. Why? They're the rulers of this age. Angels rule the world. They, they, they rule it. Now, don't get me wrong. God owns it. He can do what he wants. But right now, rule has been given to angels. But what we're getting here, listen, this is meant to encourage us. You're like, oh, this isn't how, this is encouraging me. No, but the world to come won't be. Do you get it? The world to come won't be ruled by angels. And so everyone's asking the question, oh, great, well, who will? I'm glad you asked. Let's look at the next verse. Verse, well, let's look at all of them and then we'll unpack it. Six to the first part of eight. But one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Set him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. We'll stop right there. Now here the author is going back to the Old Testament to answer the question that everyone was thinking. Okay, if the angels won't be ruling, who will be? And he quotes right from Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. Before we look at that, just notice verse 6 real quick. I just want to touch on this. Verse 6, he says, but one testified in a certain place. It almost sounds like the author does this. Uh, Somewhere in the Bible, it says this. You ever done that? Maybe you're not good at the memorizing. I know somewhere it says something about God's faithful, right? It sounds like the author's doing that. Can I just tell you, the author doesn't say, but David has testified in Psalm 8, nor has he done that anywhere. We have looked at a lot of Old Testament passages in chapter 1, haven't we? Has he ever said, David said this, Isaiah said this. He's never said that. In fact, I'm going to tell you right now, he never does that in the entire book of Hebrews. There's a reason for that. He knows full well where it's found in Scripture. He's not saying, well, somewhere it says this. What he wants everyone to know, and what I want you to know today, is that he wants people to look at the true author of Scripture. It's the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, man penned it, but it was God's inspiration. God wrote the Bible. That's why we call this God's Word. It's his word to us. And so we must understand that, that he's not talking out of ignorance. He's not forgetful of where this scripture is. He is just more concerned that the Jewish readers understand the ultimate author of scripture. But now I want to take you to Psalm 8. He's quoting Psalm 8, but not the whole thing. Now it may seem like a confusing passage. That's why I want to take you to Psalm 8 because I want to read the whole thing. It's only nine verses and you'll see in context that's a lot easier to understand. Psalm chapter 8. This was also made into a song that we sung. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all earth. It's a great one. All right, but Psalm chapter 8, I'm going to read the whole thing. It's nine verses, and you'll see the parts that are quoted there, and we'll talk a little bit about this. Now, it says this, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him. You've made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name 
in all the earth. A great little uh, psalm that David writes here. Now, what is David doing? The psalm in itself is pretty obvious, isn't it? David is simply considering creation. He's considering the vastness of the heavens. When I look at the heavens, when I look at the moon and the stars, what is he thinking? He's thinking, wow, God, you made all of that? Wow. How do you even know I exist? Why do you even care? Remember a few weeks ago, we looked at some pictures of some planets on there and, and how big some of those are in our universe, and yet the sun and even the earth just disappeared in scale. You think about you as a human being, a speck on that earth, you just seem like, well, I'm gone. How does God even know I exist? That's the purpose of the, the expanse of the universe, that you would feel small, that you would look and go, God, how do you even, why did you even come here? Why would you even care? It's incredible. What is man that you are mindful of him, he says, and the son of man that you would visit him? Now, some look at this, uh, you would visit him, or son of man, um, here in Psalm 8, and they take it to refer to Jesus. Now, I want to point out a couple of things. First of all, son of man is a title for Jesus. He does use it quite often in the New Testament. It's used in the Old Testament as well in Daniel, but it's usually capitalized, capital S, son of man, when we know it's referring to Jesus. Notice here it is not, okay? It says, son of man, that you, are, you, you visit him. Now, you can see as we read the whole thing that David's meaning here is not about the Christ. David's meaning here is all about man, that God, why would you even think about puny little me? That's what David's thoughts are. Why does it say then, son of man? Notice what he says. It's, uh, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you visit him? That's known as Hebrew parallelism. Man and son of man are parallel. They mean the same, uh, same thing. That is the idea there. Hebrew parallelism is all over the Psalms. It's all over the Old Testament. Son of man is a common name for man. If you read Job, Job calls himself son of man. Ezekiel is referred to as a son of man. And here in Psalm 8, son of man simply means a man. That's what we're, we're meant to see. It's all about mankind. In fact, look at verses 5 on again. You have made him, man, a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. What things? Sheep, oxen, beasts, birds, fish. You see that? You've given all these things to man. What is David referring to? He's referring to Genesis chapter 1. Let me show it to you. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Just make another left-hand turn. Well, just go to the first page of your Bible. It's probably right there. Genesis chapter 1. 26 to 28. This is an amazing section of scripture, by the way. He says this, then, let, then God said, let, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. I love those pronouns there, those plural pronouns, because God, the Godhead, is talking within himself. Let us, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them, man, mankind, have dominion, there it is, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So you can see it refers to all of mankind, men and women. And then God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there you have the beginning of what we're talking about there and what's, what, what David is referring to in Psalm, all right? Man has been 
has been highly honored. We've been given great glory. How? You are made in the image of God. You've been crowned with glory and honor. Birds weren't, right? Dog, dogs weren't. You were. You were made in, in the image of God, crowned with glory and honor, the pinnacle of his creation. And then you set him over the works of your hands. All the things on this earth are in subjection to man. That's why I tell people I don't mind exercising my dominion over animals and eating a steak. I have been given that dominion. Man has been given that. All things, we're told, have been put in subjection under his feet. Now, man, going back to our our passage in Hebrews, go back to Hebrews. We want to see Psalms in in context here. Let's let's look at the parts that are mentioned here and and look at verse 7 on. So notice in verse 6, he says what we've already read. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? He's talking about mankind. Now, verse 7, you have made him a little lower than the angels. How was man made lower than the angels? Listen, we're not lower in importance. We're not less loved. Man is physical. We're physical beings. Angels are not physical beings. They're spiritual beings. And as physical beings, man is bound to earth. We're bound to earth. But angels, they are, they are heavenly creatures. They're heavenly beings. Man, as we talked about, we're confined. We're confined to time and space. We cannot break out of this box that we exist in into the supernatural. But, but angels have no such limitation. Man does. Man only can rely on their natural strength and abilities. But angels demonstrate abilities that are supernatural. We definitely see them having supernatural abilities. So therefore, man is of a lower rank. Mankind is lower. And yet, what has God done with man? He's, how has he treated him? You've crowned him with glory and honor. Set him over everything. We're the chief of, of everything that God has made. Amazing. All things are in subjection under his feet. That's what it says in verse 7. Then it goes into this little part, in ver- the second part. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. So everything is under subjection of man, it says. There's not anything that's been left outside of that. Everything is under him. Okay, now I want to go back here. What is, why is the author quoting this passage? Why are we looking at Psalm 8? Do you remember the question that he is trying to answer? If angels won't be ruling, who will be? Well, this is the answer. Man. Man will be ruling. Man's destiny in the garden was to rule to rule over creation, to rule over everything. The world to come then will be ruled by man because that was God's original intention. When he created Adam and Eve, they were to live in glorious splendor and have everything in creation subject under them. God gave dominion of everything on this planet to man. But something happened, and that gets us to point two, and it's the second little part of verse 8 that you see. This is the restriction of man's destiny, okay? The restriction. Look at that little sentence at the end of verse 8. But now we do not yet see all things under him, (laughs) right? That's what most of you were thinking anyway this whole time. He's only saying out loud what everybody was thinking. Well, clearly, as I look at the world, all things are not in subjection to man. I, I, I don't have rule over everything in creation, do I? You don't have rule over everything in creation. And you're right. Dominion was given to man 
but that was before the fall of man because of sin. Man fell from that prominent place that God had given them with dominion over everything into a much lower rank. Listen, you got to think about before the fall. This will get you depressed. The earth was subject to us, completely subject to us. That means that the land would have yielded all your fruit, all your food, everything you wanted with no sweat or toil on your part at all. Amazing. Incredible. I, I, I was just driving through Southern California quite a bit as we're going to different destinations, and it's largely farmlands there. I know you all picture beach. That's just one part. It's largely farmlands. And I saw these massive tractors out there plowing up, tilling up the earth, and the guys out there doing that all day long, big clouds of dust in the air, and then giant piles of piping because there there's no rain. And in those trenches, they've got to place pipes so they can irrigate the crops. I mean, it's just tons of work just to grow some tomatoes. It's incredible. But before the fall, that would never have been part of it. Gardening, think about it. Gardening would have been a joy back then. Now, some of you are like, well, gardening's a joy now. Yeah, but you still have to pick up weeds. You still got to pull weeds, right? You got the water here, but you still got the weeds. But you had no weeds then. Women think about this, painless childbirth. How would that even be possible? Well, it would be because that's part of the curse, isn't it? Animals were even subject to us, and it wasn't out of fear. It was out of love. There was a loving, loving relationship between ruler, the ones who have been given dominion over animals, and the creature. But now we, rule, we don't rule out of love. We rule out of fear. They fear being eaten or worn, right? But it's quite different. Satan tempted man to sin, and man fell to the bottom of the chain of command. We are now subject to the earth. We were, we were dominion over there. We're subject to the earth. Everything is over us. We're at the bottom. Satan usurped the crown. He is the ruler of this world. We no longer are, and we're now at the bottom. This is just the, the blunt truth. This is our condition today. This is, why, this is why we need saving, folks. We're at the bottom. We're at the bottom now. And so there was peace, there was unity, there was no pain, there was no disease or sickness or, or even death. But when Satan tempted man to sin, that all changed. And listen, now we're at the very bottom and pain and death and war and disease, it, it rains. That is just the conditions of this world. And now the whole creation, that includes man, is we're subject to death. And did you know that the, the earth itself was subjected to the curse? Look at Romans chapter 8. This is very important. These are foundational things to understand. Romans 8, 18 to 21. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will, will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The creation, the creation itself is waiting to be liberated. It is corrupting. It's waiting for the sons of God. Why is it waiting for the sons of God? Because we will rule and reign. And when we rule and reign, the curse is broken. It's back. So the world and our position in it Right now is not how God intended, folks. This is not what God meant for you. It's not. But, but man's destiny is to reign. We're to reign in the future world. 
And that original tension will be fulfilled. And remember I mentioned earlier Revelation 20. I want to I just look at it now. Revelation 20, look at verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They reign with him. This is after Jesus returns, uh, defeats his enemies, and now believers live and reign with Christ. Two verses later in verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now listen, this is just not some... Uh, New Testament doctrine that's come to us, and it's brand new. Uh, this is promised in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, look at, I got a couple of verses here, verse 18 and, and 27. It says this, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom, kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Is that a credible thought? That we will rule and reign over every nation with Christ? Paul even says that. You remember in our study of uh, 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, he says, don't you know that we will rule over the world? Don't you know that we will judge angels, he said? So we'll be higher than the angels. Angels will be subject to us. That's man's destiny. The question is, well, how do we get there? How, how can we recover that? Because we're just in a mess right now, aren't we? Well, I'm so glad verse 9 was written. Look at verse 9. But we see Jesus. Just stop there. That's all that verse had to say, really. But we see Jesus. By the way, that's the first time Jesus' name is mentioned in the book of Hebrews. He's only been mentioned as the son, but now he's mentioned by name. We see Jesus And I love what the author is doing here. What did we see right before this? We do not yet see all things put under him. When I look around the world, I don't see everything under him. I don't see me ruling over everything, right? I see me as a slave. But he he pulls our focus to something else. But see something else. But we see Jesus. You see? I love what he does here. Why is seeing Jesus important? What does seeing him have to do with the recovery of man's lost Destiny, go on, look, it says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. That's interesting. We just read that, but we read read that about who? Us, man. Man was made a little lower than the angels. But now we see Jesus who was also made a little lower than the angels. Now, when was Jesus made a little lower than the angels? That's interesting. In fact, that word was made is very important. That word was made is only used in verse 7. We just looked at where it's referenced to man. And in verse 9 right here, where it's in reference to Jesus. It's used in one other place in all the New Testament. I want to show it to you. It's John chapter 3, verse 30. John the Baptist says this, He must increase, but I must decrease. One of those two words, increase or decrease, is was made. What's your guess? Decrease. Decrease. He was decreased a little lower than the angels. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. That's what that word means. It means to make less or inferior to, to decrease in authority. 
Jesus was made lower than the angels. When did that happen? When he became a man. Men are lower than the angels, and so when Jesus became a man, he became lower than the angels because we are lower than the angels. Do you see the author's thought here? In fact, we're told about this in Philippians chapter 2. You're well acquainted with this passage, but it's so perfect, it describes perfectly what took place. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. There's Jesus being made a little lower than the angels. This passage in Philippians gives us the reason for him coming to the world, the death of the cross. And that's what it says in our verse, verse 9. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Jesus came to suffer death. That's so important. In fact, he goes on to say that it's by the grace of God that he might taste death for everyone. Not just to suffer death for himself, but to suffer it for all of us. That's what he means by taste death for everyone, to suffer it for everybody. So here we're getting to the deep point of the whole passage. Man's destiny was to rule and reign. But that destiny was lost, wasn't it, due to sin. God cursed the whole world and everything in it, and ultimately that curse brought about death. Death came into the world because of the curse. It was, he was, well, man was warned about it in Genesis 2.17. Genesis 2.17, this is what God told Adam and Eve, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? Mankind, Adam and Eve, in the garden, they did not die right then and there when they sinned, did they? They, they actually continued to live, but they began to die because death was now in the world. Death had entered the world through sin. Paul describes it in Romans 5, 12 this way. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world, that's, that's Adam, and death through sin, and thus, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Death entered the world through one man, but that is all death needed. It just needed an entrance. It just needed a foothold. And boy, it's here. And how do we know death reigns? Everybody dies. Everybody dies. Everybody dies. I, I, was just, I was just back in California and reminded of that. Grandpa died. Everybody dies. I've not known anybody that have escaped death. Death reigns. It is the ultimate of the curse. Death is the punishment for disobedience. Adam and Eve disobeyed. Death entered the world, and now every single one of us suffer the ultimate punishment for sin. We all die. So how, how good you are, how much good you do in this world, I don't care how good it is. If you die, guess what? That's because you're a sinner. It proves that. If anyone actually continued to live and live forever, they would be a perfect person. Because you would you tell me they escaped the curse somehow. God cursed everything, folks, everything. And because everyone dies, that means everybody's a sinner. So try to prove, me, prove, prove to me that there's no sin in the world. Then show me the person who's never died. I'll show you one. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Death is the punishment for disobedience. The wages of sin is death. We're told that, Romans 6, 23. So listen, we cannot reign forever, can we? We can't reign forever if we're dead. 
The curse must be removed first. The curse must, must be mis- taken out of the way. And the only way for the curse to be removed is to have the penalty paid in full. In full. So Jesus came to pay that penalty. It says he came to pay, taste death for everyone. Now, how can that be? Well, the passage tells us how it can be. It's just a little phrase there. By the grace of God. I just love that. It's a Christian word we throw around a lot. Oh, grace, grace, grace. Do you understand what we're saying here? Jesus could come to earth. He could suffer death for everyone. And God said, that's okay. Why? Because of his grace. Because of his grace. He says, it's okay. I will let my son pay the penalty for everyone. Did God have to do that? No. But by the grace of God, he did. I will let my son pay the price. We deserve to die. Mankind deserves death, but because of the grace of God, Jesus was sent to die in our place. An ordinary man, could an ordinary man die? No, because he deserves to die. Does that make sense? But a perfect man, Jesus was undeserving of death. He was separate from sinners. In fact, Hebrews is going to go on and and tell us about that in Hebrews chapter 7. I'll just have you look at it real quick. Verse 26, for such a high priest, that's Jesus, was fitting for us who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. He's separate from sinners. That means he can't die. Sinners die. But Jesus can't die or he can't stay dead. He's separate from sinners. He rose. He rose. And that's why he has become higher than the heavens. Isn't that what we were told at the very beginning that in, 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 chapter, oh, in verse, uh, verse 3, very beginning of our study, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus purged our sins. Jesus paid the penalty. So guess what that means for us? The role that has been ascribed to humans to to rule and reign on this earth has been realized in Christ. So Jesus died our death, but how does that change our destiny? Let me just end with this. Romans chapter 6. I don't want to go too much into this because it'll be the point of the rest of the study that we'll look at next week. But Romans chapter 6 verses 5 to 11 will help us just a bit. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. There it is. That the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, here's the point, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you remember our, our memory verse, uh, Galatians 2.20? I've been crucified with Christ. That's the idea here. I, I, Kevin died a long time ago. I died a long time ago when I put my faith and trust in, in Christ. And now the curse has been removed. I'm a child of the king and, and I'm a fellow heir. And I will rule and reign. 
I haven't received the kingdom. We haven't received the kingdom. That won't happen until Christ returns, but the deal is sealed. The contract is signed. The, the transaction completed is happening. As good as done. So did you see why the author in verse 9 says, but we see Jesus? Listen, you cannot go through this life without seeing Jesus. I can't imagine people in Ukraine right now who don't have Jesus. What hope do you have? You're just being reminded that you're under the curse, that you don't have dominion or control of anything. I'm reminded of that all day long, but we see Jesus. We have to go back and be reminded Jesus conquered death and I'm united with him in my death and in his victory over death. And guess what that means? That means that now my destiny will be fulfilled and we will rule and reign by Christ's side. Listen, folks, you are not insignificant. The church is not insignificant. Yeah, we may not have a loud voice, a loud enough voice to change parliament's decisions or change the the flow of of the tide of evil in this world, but listen, you're gonna rule over all the nations of the world. We just wait on him. We'd be faithful to him. Keep your eyes where? On Jesus. In fact, I would just keep that phrase in your head this week, but we see Jesus, amen? Amen. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thanks for this wonderful passage that reminds us of the wonderful truth that we will see you one day. Our eyes will literally see you. And that's when our destiny will be realized fully and we will rule and reign with you. Oh God, what a day that will be. But until then, as I look at the world, I see that not all things are in subjection under me. That has not happened yet. It won't happen until you come. But in the meantime, we see Jesus. We keep our eyes fixed on him, the author and finisher of our faith. So God, I pray for your church today that we would be encouraged, we'd be strengthened to continue on. We would not be discouraged by the circumstances of this world. It's under the curse. It's been subjected to futility. We're going to see sickness, warfare, disease, crime, death. It's part of our world. But we know that the world to come, the world to come, Lord, be free from those things and we'll rule and reign with you. Ah, God, what a great promise. We love you. We praise you for your faithfulness, Lord. Now as your church prepares to sing these songs, Lord, help us to just glorify you as we sing about the wonderful faithfulness of our great God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.